This is episode 156 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we have two wonderful guests. We have Chelsea Essek. Chelsea is a Nigerian-American medical speech-language pathologist, merging her two worlds of art and science to improve patients' quality of life. She graduated magna cum laude from the University of North Texas, where she double majored and received her Bachelor of Fine Arts in Dance and Bachelor of Arts in Speech-Language Pathology. She then graduated magna cum laude from the illustrious Howard University with her Master's of Science in Communication Sciences and Disorders. She has been working in in an acute and subacute rehabilitation hospital and specializes in tracheostomy and ventilation, dysphagia management, and music and art therapy. She left a quote for us. I wish to see minorities in the field use their gifts in addition to their clinical skills to improve clients' quality of life. You can do both. And oftentimes it shows humility, passion, and a much more relatable therapist. Oh, I love that, Chelsea. And we are also joined by Chelsea's roommate, Jordan Carroll. Jordan is a school-based speech-language pathologist in Washington, D.C. that emphasizes the importance of being the person you needed to be when you were younger. She creates products and materials with the intention of serving as representation both in and outside the field of speech-language pathology. And I love this conversation with both Jordan and Chelsea. They're wonderful to talk to. Um, Just a heads up, we did have some audio issues with this episode. We tried to clean them up as best as we could. Chelsea was having some issues. I was having some issues. So it, it was a it was a group effort. So we tried to make the audio as best as possible. So just wanted to give you a heads up. And also keep your ears, ears and eyes <laughs> peeled on my Instagram, Teresa Richard SLP, because we are going to begin our giveaway for our 2 million downloads. We have lots of awesome giveaways for everybody. So um, follow me over at Teresa Richard SLP on Instagram, and we will be celebrating our 2 million downloads. So thank you to everyone so very much for listening and joining in and everyone that's contributed. And I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Chelsea and Jordan since it was it's, it's so necessary and they're just wonderful women to speak to. to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Chelsea and Jordan. Hello. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, I'm really happy to be here. I'm excited. Yeah. All right. I'll I'll have you guys introduce yourselves. Chelsea, you want to go first? Tell everybody who you are. Hello. Howdy, everyone. Um, My name is Chelsea Essek, and I identify as she. Um, I am a Nigerian-American residing in Maryland. That's kind of like by D.C., Virginia area. Um, I am a medical SLP at a inpatient rehab hospital in Alexandria, Virginia, and I'm also a dancer, choreographer, teaching artist as well, um, and I'm happy to be here. <laughs> awesome. 
All right, Jordan. Um, I'm Jordan Carroll. I am a speech language pathologist uh, based in DC. I work for a contracting company um, for DC public schools. Um, also reside in Maryland. Shout out my roomie, Chelsea. <laughs> and um, yeah, I really, I talk a lot about uh, representation and just like diversifying the field and, you know, conversations that I feel need to be had. And so I'm happy to be here and talk about those things with you. Awesome. All right, so where do you want to start? What do you want to cover first? Great question. Um, (laughs) I think that the first topic um, was in the mind of a Black speech language pathologist. So, um, Jordan, if you want to start, and then I'll kind of piggyback. Vice versa, make it a combo conversation. (laughs) Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I definitely, you know, this is my experience, so I can talk about this a lot. I've known I wanted to be a speech pathologist since like I was in, since I was a child, both my parents teach uh, special education. And so like that's how I was introduced to the field. And so I went in undergrad, it was my major at University of Redlands, which is a PWI or predominantly white institution. And I had like a very um, like adverse experience with people telling me not to be an SLP, that I should look into something else, like I wouldn't get into a grad program, um, you know, like had things to say about uh, my appearance, et cetera, et cetera. I can go on and on. I was just treated very differently. And so um, that was just really like, it was hard kind of just like to push through in like a field that I knew I wanted to be in, but like was definitely not welcoming. And so I feel like that's what I try to be now. I try to like represent as someone that's going to welcome anybody into the field and like be that person for other speech pathologists of color that I didn't, I wasn't, um, that I didn't get. And so uh, then I went to Howard for graduate school and that like completely changed everything. Like I saw an abundance of successful black speech pathologists um, who are now my friends and colleagues and mentors. Um, And so that just like really changed like the course of my career, I feel like. Um, And now I just, like I said, I think it's really important for me to be that person for um, the upcoming SLPs. I I hate to hear that, Jordan. I don't know if you've listened to any of the other, I don't even, I think we have another episode coming out next week, but I believe you're probably the fourth person that's come on and shared that exact experience which is just awful yeah that's definitely the thing is that my experience is bad and i know it's not even close to the worst so that's that's why i talk about it yeah yeah chelsea yeah um and unfortunately to lisa i'll be the fifth story because <laughs> mine is very similar um yeah I'm a little bit more cultural aspect because i am nigerian american so um Straight out the gate, my both my parents um, own a home health company, so back home in Houston, where I'm from. So I've always been around, um, I would say, medical therapy um, type of lifestyle. Uh, but my parents made it apparent for to to make to make sure that academics were the most important for us in our household because that was the only thing that could set us apart. So I kept that same um, ideology throughout my work experience, throughout school. Um, I was a double major growing up um, in undergrad. So that alone, um, people tried to tell me, first of all, you're, you're black. Second of all, you can't graduate within four years with being a double major, but indeed I still did. So just to find those odds and keeping that mentality of um, I do successful and do good work. So that's my, my big quote is make sure you always do good work because if anything, your work ethic can show your, your value more than your, I guess, exterior 
I love that. I hate that you have to feel that way, Chelsea, but I love that mentality. I remember I, I, <laughs> I talked, I saw in your like form that you have to fill out um, like the articles that like kind of change your perspective. And I, I obviously did not know off the top of my head, but then I went back and looked and it was actually like two of my favorite articles are like referencing the same study. And it's like, um, basically the gist is uh, the racial and ethnic disparities um, in the identification of children with autism. And basically the gist is like, their students are, are the black children are underdiagnosed because pediatricians will um, attribute like any of their symptoms or like, like anything that would be considered like an autistic symptom in a non ethnic child or child like attributed to their ethnicity and um it's just like oh maybe that's part of their culture so they don't like they don't check it they don't mark it and now we have like thousands of black children who are un- undiagnosed or it's undocumented um so, so that's really the biggest thing is like the racial disparities because whatever like if i if two children are showing the same symptoms and one has autism and one doesn't and the only difference is the race like that's that's an issue so um I think it's just, it's confusing for a lot of people because black children are both underdiagnosed and overdiagnosed. And I think it's just, or another thing that happens is uh, when black children are already diagnosed with like an intellectual disability or a learning disorder, which they are overdiagnosed for, then um, professionals, pediatricians, et cetera, don't go further into diagnosing them with autism because they feel like they already have a diagnosis and anything, any of the autistic symptoms are attributed to their culture or um, other differences that they don't understand. They get confused. Like, I feel like a lot of times we see, no, that's a difference. We shouldn't mark it wrong. But because you're not aware of the culture, like if you, if you knew both, you would understand actually, no, that is a deficit and I should mark it wrong. So this person can get the right diagnosis and the right treatment. And without that, they don't have access to any of it. So it just, the racial disparities um, are a huge issue in education and in medicine, which Chelsea is about to talk about. Good segue. <laughs> good, good catch. Good uh, layup. <laughs> so I, I definitely agree completely. And I've been talking, um, this conversation has came up quite a bit, especially in my, um, my hospital now. Is just about health disparities and racial disparities in general. Um, so what I've noticed, and just kind of from, from different case to case and different family dynamics and dealing with minorities, whether it be black or, um, you know, Hispanic or Asian-based populations, the most important thing that they all appreciate is just plain education. Um, so if we can start with, you know, when going through a chart review and seeing, you know, hypertension, CHF, diabetes, the, you know, the, the top markers for someone of a racial disparity, so African-American descendant or African-American um, bloodstream and see that these compilation of, of diagnosis are already on top of whatever pathology that they have going underneath, rather than checking it off in a mental box, like saying, okay, this person is already black, they already are high risk for this, just squealing it back and 
just simply educating a patient or the family about what the diagnosis is, what can you do to help, and how you what, what your purpose is. Because the one complaint that I, I've gotten um, actually last week was uh, we have a therapist and she just kind of just comes in the patient room and just starts her eval and doesn't even you know explain what her process is, explain her purpose, explain their diagnosis because majority of the time the patients don't even aren't even cognizantly aware of their own diagnosis. So sometimes in, in instances I have to be almost like a physician and kind of although you know some people say you're not supposed to I have to explain my purpose and my purpose lies with your diagnosis or your medical diagnosis which is x y and z so going based off of what Jordan said by simply just being culturally aware on top of the educational level of the patients that we're serving just get them aware let's not even talk treatment let's not even talk Mendelssohn maneuver. Let's not even talk fees. Let's not even talk any of that, right? Let's just reel it back and just have them understand A, your purpose, B, what the plan of care really and truly is, and that also just kind of helps discharge training and discharge, you know, planning because if, if you know the patient within the function of what they understand, that can better assist you at the end goal. Um, so that's what I've, I've noticed, that before I even get into, you know, finishing my eval, I definitely like to take time with the patient and their families to understand, hey, do you know what's going on right now? Let me ask you this, Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith. If you don't, then everything I'm saying is going out the window. So that's what I would say, starting with education, being aware of your, of your patient and the deficits, knowing when it is a difference or a deficit, and how to appropriately, you know, document and communicate that with other professionals. Definitely. And I want to go back to, like you said, um, educating like the family and making sure that they're understanding the information and the diagnosis. Like it's really the same thing in education. One of the biggest things that I see is like uh, we have a table full of professionals in an IEP meeting and which is already an intimidating situation for any parent, no matter what education they have or what their uh, professional profession is profession is yeah <laughs> like it's just like it's an intimidating situation so there's just so many times where I'm at that table and I can see that the that the parents or the family like they don't understand they don't feel comfortable asking questions they're just going to go along with whatever these people say and that's just not our job like it's not a job our job is to do what's best for the family in any in any setting with any diagnosis our job is to do what's best for the family do what's best for the patient and figure out how to work those two so I feel like we as professionals need to do a better job of like relaying the information in layman's terms. And that's one thing that I've always learned. If you really know something, you should be able to break it down to its simplest form um, so that anybody can understand it. Um, and so that's something that, especially like we're special, we specialize in communication. It's, that's something that we should be able to do for anybody. And they shouldn't walk away from the table or the room or wherever they are without feeling like they know what's happening with their child or their family member and they're okay with it. That's a, something else that leads to the racial disparities is that if the family doesn't understand and they can't help you with the care, then what, like, how is there supposed to be any carryover? How is there supposed to be any development? Like that's not going to happen if you don't get everybody involved and everybody doesn't understand the plan of care as Chelsea was saying. Yeah. What do you what do you guys think? Let, let me ask you this, because I think, you know, this is a hard topic and I and I don't know the answer. And so, Jordan, you're talking about, you know, these kids with autism that are either underdiagnosed or overdiagnosed because the pediatrician does, just doesn't know. Do you what do you think the answer is? I mean, do you think the answer is then referring them to a to a pediatrician that is black or that understands their culture better? Or do you think the answer is? 
you know, having an open conversation with the family that, you know, hey, I'm not aware of all of the cultural differences, but I'm here to help, you know, and I don't know the answer and I don't know what the appropriate. Yeah, I think honestly, I think those are both great options. I think um, a lot of times we don't. Yeah, I think we have to be humble. We have to like lead with that humility. Like if I don't understand something, I have no problem letting you know, I don't know this, but I also let you know that I'll figure it out. So if I feel like that's how you should come to the table, like if you have this uh, patient um, with like a background or culture that you don't understand, you're allowed to ask questions. You're allowed to do your own research. You're allowed to find somebody like another professional that you can contact that uh, or refer to that is like, is um, used to this population or understands them more than you. I feel like that's something that we need to do. And a lot of us aren't like humble enough to do that. Like, um, I think it does take like a certain amount of humility to call someone and say like, hey, I don't know this about this patient. Can you take them or can you help me or where can I find this information? But like, that's really all it takes. And that's what you should be doing beforehand. Because like you said, like we get, or at least in education and usually like you, you can see the chart before you go see the patient, like, we have the ability to like find out what the background is. And if we're unaware, like figure out what we need to do to become aware or who we can send them to that will be the best for that student or that patient, which is like, I always go back to like, that's the goal is what's going to be best for them. It's not always going to be you. It's not always going to be me. Like it doesn't have to be where what's the best for the patient is what's best for them. I think what's, Oh, go ahead, Chelsea. No, I was just going to say, Jordan touched on a very nice, a very beautiful topic. Um, When a family member, they, you know, were both, we were both of African descendants, but they were from Ghana. My family's from Nigeria. And the the mother just kind of stepped away and she said, you know, I just appreciate you for even trying to ask questions about my culture. Um, They love that humility. It also builds rapport with your patients. They're more comfortable with you. And they see that they're not just a number or Medicaid or Medicare number. They're actually a person first, which is, you know, we're, we're people-driven, um, you know, field, we're person-driven, so we have to make sure that our also our intervention should be person-driven as well. Um, so, Jordan, uh, that was a good point of making, you know, humility being priority um, and doing all these things before, like I said, that's just kind of understanding what the whole picture of what you're dealing with um, before making decisions. It's almost like driving a car, you know, we don't just drive without any, <laughs> with any eyes on the road. We have to kind of see where our exits are, see where our markers are, um, see the cars in front and behind before you figure out where your detour or your destination will be. Yeah, I think I, I think the tricky part is, you know, it's like if, if we see in a chart that someone is French speaking, we say, oh, we don't know French. I guess I, let me get a translator so that, you know, we can see what's going on here. I think the trouble is, you know, we're like, oh, well, we speak English and so do they. So we must all be on the same page. And I think that's where we go horribly wrong is just assuming that since you speak English and I speak English, that our cultures must be the same, our backgrounds must be the same. And I think, um, like you said, we're, you know, we've got to swallow our pride and, you know, show some humility that our cultures are vastly different. Mm-hmm. And I think, like you said, it's like, definitely more than just like English speaking there's so many differences like among everybody like for instance Chelsea and I are both black but Chelsea has a very different cultural background because she's Nigerian I think that's something that like that's not even taken into consideration most of the time Um, so that's something that I feel like everybody should focus on you should be asking questions about anybody like (laughs) anybody that you're working with you should be asking questions to get to know them to build rapport to make sure you're giving them the best treatment for them that's individualized like I think that's where we need to go from here. Thank you guys. Those are some great, great topics, great ideas. 
Um, what about, did we cover the sugar-coated language of racism in medicine? Just when I notice I see a lot of documents sometimes that re- refer like uh, black people or um, biracial or people of color or BIPOC of color with higher risk for just kind of just not trying to stereotype what we are at higher risk for before knowing what our true baseline is kind of sometimes throw me throws me off a little bit because if I was a, a patient um, and, I, and I read that about me I would kind of say well what type of BIPOC am I right am I um, Hispanic <laughs> am I um, am I black am I Nigerian because actually Nigerian culture we don't have signs and symptoms of high potential or or, um, or diabetes but the typical African American born in the U.S. does so just being a little bit aware of what Jordan was saying, layman's terms is always um, best. If you just describe what you see is what I was trained to do. So if, if, if it is a female, okay, she's a female, she's high, you know, high fever, low fever, she's febrile, just say what the patient is presenting with rather than reading the chart. And, you know, the um, emergency department calls the person black and they're actually not black. So things like that is a little bit more technical um, in reference to how other professionals characterize minorities. But if we could just kind of be aware of that as well, just making it a blanket statement, almost how in our field, we don't like to call people by their um, disease first. So we don't say demented individual. So you, you don't want to kind of go into the same thing and call us black female right or you you just really don't know the dynamic so again it goes into the same thing we just talked about knowing your patient before you characterize or before you narratorize or or say anything um as far as documentation just know the patient first yeah i can definitely say the same i can definitely say the same like one thing i see all the time in education is black boys with the diagnosis um emotionally disturbed like I can't tell you how many times I have seen it and I see the kid and I'm like, what are they talking about? Like, <laughs> this is crazy. And I think it's just like, it's an, it's a way to say like this black boy may be problematic because of some trauma that he's endured or whatever like happened. It's not taken into, consa- in, it's not taken into consideration what the trauma was, how it's impacting him as an individual, how it's impacting his family, how it's impacting his relationships, his ability to learn. Like it's just this blanket statement that they give to black children, most often black boys that doesn't really like, what does it mean to me? Like, how is that, how is that going to influence the way I treat him because he's emotionally disturbed? Like that doesn't give me any information. Like what is, I'm emotionally disturbed. (laughs) A lot of times I'm emotionally disturbed when I'm hungry. (laughs) I'm emotionally disturbed when I'm like, you know, (laughs) like I just, I just think it's crazy how many times I see it and it does, it doesn't make sense to me. And so like that, that is one um, example I feel of, I feel of like sugar-coated racism. Well, and how does that also make them feel exactly. if they were to ever, exactly. you know, at what age, you know, are you aware of why you have an IEP or what you're diagnosed with and to see emotionally disturbed? Right. I can't imagine I reading couldn't. that about myself, like, yeah, right, because I, right. I'm, I'm affected by something traumatic that has happened to me. Now I'm emotionally disturbed. Like this is an appropriate reaction to what happened. Like, <laughs> this is crazy. Right. It's crazy. Right. Right. I think this is kind of the one instance in our field where critical thinking can hurt us. And I say that in in exactly what you were saying, Chelsea, I think, you know, we say, oh, this is a black person. Yes, they must have high, you know, hypertension. And then our, you know, brain just takes us to this crazy place. Whereas this is the one time where it's just time to get objective and ask them the questions and 
just get firsthand information instead of assuming that we know all these exactly. correlations and, and relationships we because right. we just I've, plain don't know. Right. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Like, we, we should be able to do both. We should be able to, like, recognize what's happening and think critically without making assumptions. So, like, you can notice that about a patient and say, usually this is what happens with this population. I should ask questions to see if that's what's happening with this individual. Like, I feel like that should be the process. I think that's so interesting. Like you said, Chelsea, that for the Nigerian population, that's not the case at all. And that's, you know, just a crazy assumption that people would make. Right. So just being aware of, um, you know, we all may be the same color, but we're all different in shapes and sizes and styles and, and you know, medical pathologies as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What a concept, right? Like, <laughs> Exactly. Well, and that kind of leads us into, you know, rethinking empathy. I think we talked about that a little bit, but. Empathy is something I talk about a lot. I feel like it's something that we don't do enough as people. We don't show children enough empathy, I feel like. And so I think it's just something that needs to be discussed. I talk about like the platinum rule, which is um, the golden rule is like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And then the platinum rule is do unto others as they would like done for them. So I think it's very different. It goes back to like being culturally responsive, being culturally aware and asking questions. Um, I use the example, like when I'm upset, ice cream will make me feel better like 10 out of 10 times. But another person that's lactose intolerant and you bring them ice cream when they're upset, it's going to make their day worse. Like it doesn't work for everybody. Um, So I think really just like getting to understand um, what your patient needs and what's going to help them. I'm really big on like love languages and like understanding how people give and receive love or affection or whatever it may be, um, or praise, which is a big one in our field too. Um, Because everybody doesn't like, everybody doesn't like to receive a gift. Some people don't want a high five. Some people don't like physical touch. Like there's just so many things to think about and understand about um, each individual. And it's a lot, like I understand because like I have a lot of kids on my caseload. It's a lot to really think about um, what each individual needs, but it's also our job. So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I feel like we can do it. I love that, Jordan. Going based off of Jordan again, um, we're just basketball team here. (laughs) And free throws, love um, so play, playing off of empathy, uh, in my perspective, from my what I do on a daily and, and you know, in the medical um, field is empathy or, okay, how do I say it? Non, so non-compliance is a word that we use in our field quite a lot when someone's non-compliant with um, exercises, they don't want to do uh, treatment, they don't want to do participate in the eval or anything or progress notes or progress reports. So compliance is a big thing. And what I've noticed is, again, when you're empathetic with your patients, I had a, um, a gentleman, he was non-compliant with anything I was doing, and I just had to understand why. And he was able to use a different modality, right, writing, because he wasn't a talker. He was able to write and tell me, I don't like my roommate so this whole time I'm thinking that it's just me in treatment or it's just whatever the facility or whatever and he's just not happy with with his room situation so me being empathetic in that in that in that instance I was able to kind of push through the non-compliance so again going back to naming kids or um, incorrectly naming like you know emotionally just emotionally disturbed or um you know non-participatory, those things can come from being empathetic if we just maybe sit back and ask the question, why aren't you doing this or why don't you want to do this? And you could figure out another reason or another way to reach the same, the same result with a different modality. So 
that's how I uh, empathize in my day to day. I try to figure out a way for uh, my patients to engage when they're not trying to. So what is the real underlining issue? Um, but that, again, that takes time for people to understand and and just take time to be with your patient before you look at their, uh, their pathology. So just piggybacking off of, yeah. off of that. I, I love that you said that, Chelsea, and I actually yeah. just wrote an Instagram post last night about why I hate the term noncompliance. And it actually, the, the summer, so I have a son with special needs. He gets, I think, 24 therapy sessions a week. Um, it's a crap ton. And I had a therapist, I, I had a therapist say that we've been noncompliant with our home exercise program. And I was just like, do you understand how many exercises this poor kid has to do? Like, there's not enough time in the day between school, eating, you know, I have another daughter, you know, it's like, I would love to get to everything and be the most perfect, you know, model mother getting, you know, him all the therapy he needs, but it's just not possible. And it just got me thinking, you know, how many times we peg people as non-compliant without asking them, you know, hey, why haven't you been doing all the exercises? And I would have just said, because it's way too much dang stuff to do. Like, yeah, so definitely. <laughs> I think um, one thing that was like beat into us at Howard <laughs> is asking open-ended questions. Like you, everything should be an open-ended question. That's true. No matter who you're talking to, no matter if you're, no matter if you're counseling, no matter if you're in a session, like asking open-ended questions is gonna, that's when you're gonna get the most language out of anybody. And that's when you're going to get the most information. Like it's, it's, I think it's pretty simple. So I think that's one way to really practice empathy is to do that. And then when it goes, like going back to noncompliance, that's something I see all the time. It's it's tied into like emotional disturbance. Like all my kids are noncompliant until they're with me and they're complying. So I'm like, (laughs) what are you talking about? Or there's like this one time there's this kid, great kid. um, He has, he's labeled ED. um, uh, He has a, uh, he's labeled ID and ED, and he's labeled with this like non-compliance thing. He came to my session one time, and he was just so upset, didn't want to do anything. Was just like had an attitude, was like throwing his stuff on the table, and I just like sit there and I'm like, man, what's going on? Like, <laughs> what's up? Like, are you upset? You know, like I don't understand. And he just like doesn't say anything for a while, and I'm like, okay, well, until like we're not gonna do anything until like you're you're ready. Like I'm not I'm not gonna force you to do like these like speech activities and like what to me at this point in his life seems pointless when he's clearly upset about something else. So we sit and I ask him what's going on and he expresses to me that he's like got into a fight with this kid in his class and he's just so mad at him. And we have this like whole discussion about how, you know, maybe the kid didn't mean it this way. Maybe he meant it that way. And maybe, you know, like the perception is wrong or maybe like when you go back to into class, like this is how we can talk about it. And like that ended up being like the basis of our session. And it was great. Like we got so much language in and like it was, it was great. And then after, after that conversation, we were able to still complete all the activities I had planned in even a shorter amount of time. And none of that would have gotten done if I like tried to force the speech onto him when he's upset. Like they, they, they need to express what's going on with them just as much as we do. And we have to be that person for them. Like we have to be the ones to like ask the questions and actively listen and reaffirm that what they feel is okay. Because like a lot of times they're not getting that elsewhere. What a beautiful example of functional language, right? Like how many right. times are like, why, why would they do our <laughs> stupid worksheets or play our silly games? You know, when you could have just let him sit there and be upset and you know, he wouldn't have, wouldn't have played, but instead, you know, you made it just so functional. And that's what's so beautiful about 
you know, what we possibly can do in this field. Exactly. Why representation matters. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> okay, so I think about representation in like two different ways. One, like diversifying the field of speech pathology. As you know, it's like 92% white, 3% black. Um, so just like really increasing diversity into like our profession. And then I think about diversity in like the materials that we use with our patients and students and the things that we're showing them on a daily basis. Like, can they see themselves in the things that you're giving them every day and the activities that you're doing with them every day? Or are you showing them people that don't look anything like them, that are doing actions that they've never seen or never feel like they could do before? Like, I think it goes into... Um, Two there's two very like separate directions, but two very important things. I think representation as far as the field, like for me personally, was really hard. Like I said, going into like my undergrad experience and not like having anybody to really look up to, and it's just you know my favorite one of my favorite quotes is you can't be what you can't see and so it's just how am I supposed to do this like no there's no me's like there's there's nobody that looks like me acts like me thinks like me like none of it and so I think just it's it's hard to do that it's hard to be that um without the representation and it goes into the same thing when you think about the materials that you're using with your students like if you're showing them teachers and doctors and firefighters and all these amazing professions and you're playing with all these dolls and none of them look or sound or act or think like them like how would they how would you feel if that was the case like um i saw an article about somebody that went into a store and just like had this whole realization, like all the dolls and all the aisles were white and he was walking around and his daughter was mixed. His daughter was black and white. And he was like, wow, I can't imagine like being her and seeing all these dolls that look nothing like her. She probably thinks she's like ugly. She probably thinks she's not acceptable. And like all these things that most black girls and black children like have thought about themselves for these very reasons. Um, so I think it's just really important for us to think about. Absolutely. Jordan did a really good job with touching on, you know, the speech and speech pathology world point of view. And I'm going to take it a little bit, zoom out just a little bit and talk about the reason why and our purpose for our Instagram pages. So before, I know when, when Jordan and I were in, um, in graduate school, we didn't, Instagram wasn't really this phenomenon of what it is today. We didn't have people who we would just kind of talk to and um, communicate with on, on Instagram or Facebook. So when we created our pages, it was more so like, hey, you know, let's let's keep in contact with some of our, our cohort members and other, you know, SLPs that we could just see in the world. But now it has monetized into something that is so imperative for other SLPs to be of color, of minorities. So just showing a representation point of view that, yes, I'm a black speech pathologist. Yes, I can be on Instagram. Yes, you can be a medical SLP or school SLP defying odds and still being an advocate for your people. So that's what I, I believe our purpose now for the page and, and just to bring it in a, a broader, broader point of view, how representation in that scheme of things outside of just our field is so important. Um, I know I've connected with many young females, African-American, African. -American, African. Um, I was just on the SLPs of Color podcast and, and, and got to speak with more people. It's just very, I'm very blessed and thankful that we had the opportunity to show how representation is so important, even on social media. So <laughs> that's just my little uh, tidbit about 
representation um, and how, how impactful it is, in, especially in this day and age with everything that's virtual. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, the quote I live by is be the person you needed when you were younger. And I think that's definitely how uh, Chelsea and I both live, because like I said, we didn't really have anybody. Like, yeah. And so we know we had each other. <laughs> but like anybody to like look up to <laughs> anybody like look up to like it, it wasn't it was non-existent. So now for us to be able to be that for like SLP to bees and like future SLPs coming up, it's 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 a, I feel like it's a lot of responsibility because like I said, like we no, we didn't have that. And so like to try to be that for somebody else is kind of hard, but also like I'm proud to have the responsibility because like I'm trying to be who I needed and I know that I needed somebody. So to be that for somebody else is it's been really cool. That's beautiful. Yeah. I remember Lauren um, from speak from the heart was on a few episodes yeah. ago too. Mm-hmm. And she said the same thing. There just was never anybody that was an SLP that looked like me. So, I mean, it's wonderful what you guys are doing on Instagram and social media. And, you know, there is a young black girl that thinks, hey, I want to be a speech pathologist one day. Is there anybody that looks like me in this field? And it's great that now they can say, heck yeah. Exactly. With a hashtag too. (laughs) All right. Um, Why HBCUs matter? Um, I would say for the same reason, like, like I said, before I went to Howard, I didn't see any black SLPs and then I go to Howard and I'm learning from the best, some of the best in the field. And I'm learning along with like my future colleagues who are also like amazing speech pathologists now. Um, and I think it really just like changed my entire perspective. Um, and I think another thing about HBCUs that people don't really think about is like everywhere else in the world like the first thing people notice about you is you're black. Like that's the first thing people see. It's the first thing people say, like that's the first thing that gets acknowledged. But when you're on like Howard or your Howard's campus or an HBCU campus, like that's not, that's not what you're known for. That's not your whole identity. Um, before I came there, like I was always uh, Jordan, the black girl or Jordan, the black speech pathologist or the little black girl that plays basketball or like whatever. That's really like, my, that was my entire identity. And then I get to Howard and I'm known for like, the things that I've done or like my, my um, academic efforts or um, how well my session just went, like those are like, that's what I'm known for now. It's like a completely different perspective. Like it's a completely different lifestyle for me. And it's kind of like a safe haven when you're there for however long you're there, two years, four years. And so I think that's, that's something that was really important for me. And that's a reason why I advocate for HBCUs because like you don't really get that experience anywhere else. Can you explain what HBCUs are? Yes, HBCU is Historically Black College or University. Awesome. Um, for me, the, the, my, my greatest, greatest, um, I would say, my greatest, the most, the thing that I'm most fortunate for um, at Howard was getting the opportunity to learn from, like Jordan was saying, the top professionals, um, who are African-American in the field of speech pathology, who are on ASHA boards, who have wrote textbooks. And it was an honor just to be sitting in class with these, with these individuals. On top of that, um, they were the catalyst for me to go into my medical SLP journey because it is hard being a medical SLP. It is hard trying to get into an acute setting, but imagine that hardship with the color of your skin right so being african-american being minority was even 10 times harder so for me to be studying under 
Dr. Annette Hines, um, Ms. Ashley Webb, even reading from um, Dr. Humphrey, um, things like that. It just helped me, number one, be in the positions to <laughs> follow their footsteps. So I would say they helped me so much by, of course, giving me a letter of recommendation to this hospital that I want to apply to, or, um, you know, allowing me to be in this volunteer experience at the Stroke Center, just having those uh, chain of commands and chain of connections, um, being African American and being a minority was so imperative for me and so great for where I am today. So I just always like to thank, and I made a post about them on Instagram, um, the melanin SLPs who, who made a difference in my life. And um, I think if, if it weren't for me being at Howard, I wouldn't have gotten that experience from um, any other university. So Yeah, and that's wonderful and sad all at the same time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the reality that uh, I, I wanted to say yeah, all that yeah. to make sure that people do give back and advocate for ourselves, right? So as you see me and Jordan are just another lineage of the continuation, God willing, of other SLPs who continue to push and continue to make, you know, make things be aware and bring things into light and show that there's no, there's, there's no limits. There really is no limits. Yeah. I think I, I do remember a few years back, um, there's the, the National Black Speech Language Hearing Association. And I remember somebody saying, like, well, why why do they need their own association? Why can't they just join us? You know, why are they trying to segregate? And I just remember thinking, like, well, maybe because they probably don't feel welcome. Maybe they don't feel like they belong. Maybe somebody's not invited them. You know, I and I, and I don't, don't know what the answer is, but, you know, hearing you guys talk about just never feeling welcome or, or not having somebody that that looked like you or like you said you know calling you that 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 little black girl you know that's just awful and, and heartbreaking and you know everyone wants to feel welcome everybody wants to be part of a community and yeah i don't know what the point no, is. No, I, think I, I, think, was, I think i got the point <laughs> I think, I think I'm not no, that's that. good information. It's, it's, it's almost like an, um, like you said, it's it's sad and happy at the same time because I, I don't want this to be, you know, oh, you know, black people are never going to face adversity again. That's not the point at all because we, it could be, it will continue to be an ongoing fight for us um, for equality in all aspects, not just SLP world. Um, however, I just want it to be an awareness, just be aware, right? So now, I, in all my life, I've never seen, um, you know, a movie TV station or even a, a channel guide have a specifically black or minority based movie channels now so it's just awareness from everything that's been going on in the world it's now black people are now being more appreciated which we we, we were, we've been trying to get this whole time so i think it's just you know a, a tip of the iceberg and it's just this awareness and just education it goes it all ties back into each other if we think about all our topics is education awareness and just being sensitive culturally sensitive to everything so yeah i feel like we've come a long way and i think what you like what you said was a great point like me like why do we need our own space like because you know the first one wasn't working for us for whatever reason that may be um i went through the same thing in undergrad um like uh we me and a group of girls like founded the first like multicultural sorority on our campus because all the Greek life was like 98% white and it was like the same thing. You don't feel like you belong there. Um, so we tried to create our own space and that was the exact same reaction they had is like, well, why do you need your own space? We have all these other organizations. And it was like, the, it was like exactly the same like argument. So I definitely like brought that to my attention. 
but also like like Chelsea was saying like I understand it's not like it's not it's not going to be easy it's never really going to be easy but we've we've come a long way um and yeah I think it's just cool to see that we've like kind of paved our own way into the field and like showed people the reason why we had to fight and why we may not have felt comfortable and now we kind of see some changes happening so we just got to keep going. I think this has been an awesome conversation. I'm super grateful for you guys to just be open and vulnerable about, yeah, I mean, why, why things are the way they are. Because I think, like we've talked about, we all have these stupid assumptions for no reason. And, you know, why don't we talk about it? So I'm super grateful to you guys for starting these conversations. And, and thank you, Teresa, for also allowing, um, you know, platforms to catalyst as well off of um, the movement, such as the diversity collaborations you have nightly, um, things like that, just being, having these podcasts, having individuals of color on, on, pod, on your podcast just to bring awareness as well. So I do thank you personally for um, having such a wonderful collective and being culturally sensitive to our needs as well. So Thank you. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Just like you having us on here means like so much to us. Um, and just the fact that you're like open to having these conversations and like asking the hard questions to like, not just us, but the entire field. Um, and so, like you said, like this is, we're making changes and you're definitely a part of that. And so we appreciate you for it. Thank you guys. Yay. I appreciate you guys. Any, any final thoughts? Um, you know, keep doing the work. You know, don't let up. Keep learning. Keep growing. And really just appreciate the good things and the people that you have around you because it's a crazy world we live in. And take care of yourself <laughs> because this world is crazy. Yes, take care of yourself. <laughs> take care of yourself, yes. Continuously do good work no matter um, the color of your skin. So if, it, if you didn't take away anything, just do good work and take care of yourself. It'll all pay off in the end or in the beginning. Either way, continuously do good work. Awesome. I love your guys' messages. And I think what's important for me is I just don't want this conversation to get buried. Mm -hmm. You know, it was such a huge, you know, movement. What was it just a few months ago? And it was just like, you could see social media booming. And I just was like, I can see this just evaporating, you know, and I just don't, I want to just continue to make a conscious effort to keep having these conversations and, and keep reminding everybody that these problems are not going to go away. They, we need to do something about it to, to make things better for everybody and future generations. And so, yeah, you guys keep doing your good work too. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, you guys. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.